0: really important. We're not here to serve one scene on campus. We're not meant to be um, just one social group. We're meant to be something that serves any scene on campus and you can come hopefully from any personal background and um, experience and come and be welcomed in here. Um, and that includes where you are with Jesus or Christianity. And so um, whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced or a believer or a spiritual skeptic, we're glad you're here. And finally, if this is like your first time or one of your first few times, thanks for coming. We really are glad you're here. I'd love to get to know you. Um, Thanks for taking the time to come to Large Group. So this semester in Large Group, we're actually looking through the life of Simon Peter in a series I'm calling Stumbling Into a Run. Stumbling Into a Run. And by way of reminder, we're studying the life of Peter for three distinct reasons. First, Simon Peter offers us an up-close and interpersonal answer to two central questions about Christianity. Who is Jesus and what's the church all about? So we looked at who is Jesus and what the church is all about. Second, we're also looking at Simon Peter's life because he's so much like us, like we want to be and like we don't want to be. He's constantly making mistakes, often stumbling over himself with Jesus and with other people. And sometimes he breaks into a run in the midst of that, like the way that we hide slipping and tripping in front of other people by breaking into a run, right? Flip flops in rainy weather is a bad idea. Just, you know, help you out there. I did that at Davidson one time on the front steps of chambers. Um, Other times, uh, Peter's refreshing honesty gives us this like fast and loving momentum, like a run. And third, and perhaps the most compelling reason uh, for studying Peter's life, its centrality, um, its stumbles, its loving speed, is that all these things show off Jesus' confidential and steadfast care for us. People like Peter, people who, at the end of the day, are like us. Jesus has a confidential and a steadfast care. And so, like, how did we get to this reading? How did we get to Matthew chapter 26 and Peter's denial of Jesus? Several weeks ago, very beginning of the semester, in this very room, we studied the first two major encounters between Jesus and Peter. And then we jumped forward two years, and we just studied a one 24-hour period of time where Jesus invites Peter to walk onto water, and he also invites Peter to stay in the midst of some really hard sayings and some hard truths about how life works. And then kind of finally, two weeks ago, we started kind of rounding the corner for the final year, the final evening of Jesus' ministry. And we see sort of um, the relationship between Peter and Jesus kind of take form and anticipate and endure Jesus' death by crucifixion and his resurrection from the burial tomb. And so um, a night that began with that awkward, embarrassing moment where Jesus, dressed only in a towel, washed the feet of his his followers, has now moved into Jesus' spot-on predictions about betrayal and Peter's long look of loyalty. So before we're going to move more deeply and delve more deeply into the chapter 26 of Matthew. Would you pray with me for a minute? And we'll set our hearts and our minds. Father, um, we need you to show up. Um, I feel like my voice could shut down at any second. Um, I really appreciate uh, what Ramsey said. I just feel like we're all um, posturing. We're all struggling to be someone we're not. And I pray tonight that you would help us in the midst of that to feel loved, um, to feel um, in the midst of what maybe feels like an onslaught of freshman or sophomore fall or or senior um, or junior um, fall that you would just be with all of where we are that we are in different places with you God we are in different places with Davidson um, some of us are living the dream and some of us just want to give up and I pray that um, you 'd meet us where we are you know where we are and I pray that your word would go forth and that Jesus, you'd be more believable and more beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. I think at some point it's safe to say that all of us have experienced rejection or betrayal even, whether it's like big or small, or whether we've like it's been done to us or we've been actually the people to do it to other people, right? Um, I'm going to help you go there because this is hard. Um, we all kind of have these moments where we felt betrayed if we allow ourselves to go back into the memory vault and go into that awkwardness and that, and that discomfort. Uh, again, let me lead the way. I was in high school, and I distinctly remember the excitement of buying tickets for the Dave Matthews Band concert. Uh, I was stoked. I had these great seats, this great band, and I was going to sit with my older, cooler sister, so I was really pumped. Um, And then we get to the Polaris Amphitheater. We park the car, and my sister says goodbye. And she just goes and hangs out with all her older, cooler friends the whole evening. And I walk to my seat, which was really good, several rows from the stage. Try to enjoy the opening act, but I'm just surrounded by middle-aged strangers (laughs) in khakis. And, um, And also this empty seat where my sister was supposed to sit. And so I spend the remainder of the concert wandering around the lawn at the back of the amphitheater looking for people I know from my high school to sit with. Of course, like, I was hurt and angry at my sister. Um, I just kind of felt like maybe she just wanted to get mom and dad to pay for a ticket and did this whole charade that I wasn't aware of. Uh, But deeper still, I think these kind of things affect us deeper. Um, I began to wonder if there was something wrong with me. And when when we get betrayed, we start to wonder if there's something wrong with us. We start to wonder, like if that one moment in that one relationship was actually a statement about us, about me. Am I that uncool? Is every relationship I have, is it just sort of watch out until someone more fun comes around? But then there's also times where the tables turn and we are also the betrayer, even if we don't realize it until much later on, and I'm gonna help us go there too. It was my senior year at Davidson and um, I decided that my friend since freshman year had changed way too much. He was way too difficult, among other things he struggled with bipolar, and so I mentally and emotionally just cut him off. I even told him as much. I said, our relationship doesn't make the cut. I'm really sorry, I have this very high bar of friendship, but we're not friends, which is awful. And only later did I realize how incredibly awful that was. I'm sad to say, that that was me at my worst. And what I realized is I not only let my friend down in that moment, I also shattered my idea of who I really was. And it's really here that you and I enter the story of Peter tonight, okay? Here we are with Peter with all of these heavy feelings of unfiltered remorse and unfiltered regret and unfiltered self-loathing. And certainly these like bitter deposits aren't the whole story of who we are. They aren't all of us or even most of us most of the time, but these feelings are a piece of all of us. Each of us have times and places where we find ourselves unable to live up to our very own standards. There's some deep-seated sense in which we're with Peter in the high priest's courtyard watching ourselves say and do the very things that we hoped we'd never say and never do. We've all had those moments. And those moments have that moment where you come to your realization of yourself. There's the cock's crow, the friend's question that totally throws you off, the next morning, or fall break, where you get some perspective. And so what do you do with this bit of a reality check? That we're so quick to deny, so quick to dismiss, so quick to hide. What do we do when we let God, when we let another person, when we let ourselves down? Again, like, go there with me, what do we do? This is the burden of this story. This is why this story occurs in all four Gospels. This story is trying to address that very question of what do we do when we let all these people, including ourselves, down? And we get to see the way that Jesus addresses this very question, even in Matthew chapter 26. And so chapter 26 of Matthew's gospel is really going to take on, sometimes delicately, sometimes bluntly, our full selves. And show us the full, undisclosed, uh, fully disclosed Jesus. In three distinct stages, and that's on your outline, printed on your handout. Okay. So I'm going to read these real fast because it's right there for you. First, verses 30 through 35. We see in Peter who we often think we are. Who we often think we are. Okay, second, in verses 69 through 75, we see in Peter who we can sometimes be. Who we can sometimes be. And third and finally, in verses 32 and 75, we see who Jesus always is. So that's where we're going in those three steps. And as usual, we're going to start with the first step in the very beginning. I'm going to work our way towards the end of the passage. I'm going to look at verses 30 through 35 and the way that Peter tells us in the scene who we often think we are. So look with me, if you, if you can, at verse 30. It's a short statement about how we got here, the place and the time of Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial, right? When they had sung a hymn, okay, they, this happened on that first night of the Passover celebration, after a meal, after Jesus had washed the followers' feet, after the very first Lord's Supper. I'm just going to take a moment and explain what all of that is, because that's kind of complicated. So we're just doing the same page moment. So some of you are like, I know what all those terms mean. Some of you are like, I have no idea what those terms mean. Um, This is sometime in the spring, during the Jewish festival, that kind of calls to mind or remembers how God delivered ancient Israel from Egypt, the Passover. And Jesus has just explained or instituted the Lord's Supper, or communion, That is where Jesus' followers eat bread that represents Jesus' body and drink wine and sometimes grape juice. Oh well. And, uh, side note, uh, that represents his blood. Are we tracking besides my little theological commentary there? Okay, great. We had to have that, didn't we? Um, Anyway, verse 30, still there, we read, Jesus took them down from the garage apartment slash dining room that he's doing the Last Supper in, and he takes him to his favorite nature park, okay? Just in the vicinity of Jerusalem, which is the Mount of Olives. Okay, there and then, Jesus uses the prophecy of Zechariah, who's a minor prophet in the Old Testament, to give his own prophecy, okay? Jesus tells us that all of his own followers will fall away, verse 31. In the original Greek, this is actually much stronger. It's a much stronger statement. The word for fall away is scandalizo, Okay? Which is where we get the word, and the TV show, scandal, right? Straight from the original Greek, as usual, right? <laughs> so, anyway. Okay, it refers, actually, to being caused to stumble, in all seriousness. To be led into sin. And Jesus says, you all, in other words, will desert me. Okay, not just, like, fall away, but you will desert me. And notice Peter's response in verse 33. Again, a lot stronger in the original Greek. Sure. Sure. Jesus, they all, those guys, will desert you. But I, singled out by a pronoun, I will never, ever desert you. Do you hear the way that Peter's boasting here? Okay, he's actually boasting by comparing himself to everybody else. Okay, he's saying, I am not like them. In fact, I don't even really get them. I am the exception to the rule, I am exceptional. And we should at least know, whether it's from personal experience or the cultural place and time that we live in, uh, we should understand this passage. Because exceptionalism is something that's written to the very foundation of America. Do you get this? It goes back to 1630, on a ship. They're not even at America yet. Okay? The Arabella. Okay? He's not even there. And he gives a speech about America and how great America is going to be. His name is John Winthrop. And he tells his fellow colonists, the new colony of Massachusetts is going to be a city upon a hill. And that means we're going to be watched and admired by the rest of the existing world. Okay? That is, America is going to be this like, uniquely new nation that is not subject to the history of the world cycles. We will never fall. Because we're this new nation. And we have this mission to transform the rest of the world for the better. And, you, and even people like Abraham Lincoln picked this idea up in the Gettysburg Address. Okay? So... And then in the 1800s, again, Horatio Alger wrote a string of wildly popular bestsellers like the Twilight of that period, okay, like Harry Potter, okay, and he says that every single one of them has the same plot line, okay, something about a lightning bolt on the forehead, now I'm just, I don't, it's, it's actually sort of, it's this national concept he makes individual, he says this, look, by sheer willpower, any and every American can escape any set of scenarios, right, okay, usually rags. And then they can make it into riches, okay? Rags to riches story. Every single story is the same. And of course, along the way, people are going to tell you, mean, kind of aristocratic people are going to tell you, you can't. But, yes, you can, right? And when, so I want you to understand, when we read Jesus doubling down and telling Peter in verse 34, okay, he can't. There's something in every one of us because most of us are American, that wants to stand and cheer with Peter when he says, yes, I can. I will not, no, never deny you, even if it means death. Q epic movie soundtrack, right? Like violins, like giant pounding drums, like we're in it to win it. Bagpipes even, all a brave heart. We're in it. However, like this is a real life story, not a movie, like Pirates of the Caribbean or something, okay? In, our, in this real-life story, there's actually no soundtrack, right? There's no violins, there's no bagpipes, pretty sure. And there's a deafening silence, right? Jesus is deafeningly silent. And then just verses later, we just we watch this in action. We watch it unfold. Peter denies, the high, denies Jesus in the high priest courtyard. And look, I just want to be clear, I don't think the scriptures are against the possibility or even the need of social, economic, or political advancement. Okay, I just want to be really clear here. But Peter's almost American kind of exceptionalism and self-belief can lead to a deadly kind of perfectionism. Welcome to you. Welcome to me. Welcome to Davidson College. Okay? If we do well in any area, no matter what it is, we get superior by comparison, also known as judgmental, okay? I look down on other people. I expect too much of them from that area. I say things in my heart and in my mind, but never out loud. I can. Why can't you? But what happens when we do poorly in an area? When we get guilty and we get full of self-despair so quickly, and then, you know, there's even more, there's this anxiety that I haven't quite done enough, or won't be able to live up to my own standards, or live down the criticism that's about to come at me. And so I say in my heart, in my mind, I can't, how do you do it? But I never say that out loud. There's this pressure to be exception to the rule. (laughs) There is this pressure that everyone else can fail, but I can't. That is exceptionalism and it can so crippling trust me i get it i get it even right now but verses 69 through 75 suggest that this kind of exceptionalism is not it's also not like just the full truth about who we are okay those following we're on point 2 okay who we can sometimes be so exceptionalism is not the full truth of who we are you see in verses 33 through 35, Peter is arguing with Jesus, God incarnate, and his all-knowing assessment of him. In effect, Peter is saying two things to Jesus at that moment, God in his presence. He's saying, Jesus, you don't know me. You don't know me. That's not who I am. And then he's also simultaneously saying, I know who I am better than you do, Jesus. Don't put words in my mouth, Mr. Doom and Gloom. Because this this Messiah thing is going to work out well. You don't get it yet, but you're not going to die. You don't get it yet, you're, you're going to kick the Romans' heinies back to the peninsula of Rome. But, you know, you'll, you'll figure it out. Look, again, I just want to make sure that you understand, Jesus is not saying that Peter is all bad. Like a denier in every part of himself. Or he's bad like all of the time. He's not saying those things. But Jesus is saying that Peter and we can sometimes forsake and renounce the very things and the very people that we treasure like I did with my friend, senior year of college. And then verses 69 through 75 are like this blow-by-blow clinic on the way that Jesus understands Peter and us better than we understand ourselves. It's this progression of how we can possibly deny and then fail even ourselves. Okay, so look at Peter's self-honesty. Okay, so it begins with like mixed motives and mixed emotions Okay, so that's sort of coming to himself, he's mixed motives, mixed emotions, he's entering into the high priest courtyard, okay? And look, I, we can imagine the scene together. Perhaps he's drowsy from like a full meal, a sleepless night, red wine. What is it, tryptophan? Perhaps he was still woozy from all that had happened in a few short hours, okay, right? Just think about what happened between. Re- just recently. He fell asleep during Jesus' extended prayer time. <laughs> okay. And then he wakes up to this like violent mob coming at Jesus, led by the high priest and his friend Judas. And he watches himself like hold his sword and slice through the air, hit an ear, slice through it, and then he sort of breaks into this stumbling, panicky run out of the garden. And somehow he like makes it to the courtyard below where Jesus is being interrogated, where he's getting worked over by the Jewish religious leaders of this council called the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And to Peter's credit, he's like one of the few people that actually even gets back to Jesus. Everyone else is out of the picture for the most part, right? But to Peter's discredit, he was not bravely the side of Jesus. I love the way that Nadia Bowles-Weber puts it. He chose instead to anonymously warm himself by a near charcoal fire, but you just can't warm feet that have gone that cold. You can't warm feet that have gone that cold. What a clever way of putting it, anyway. That's nice. Um, <laughs> then, look, Jesus is confessing the truth upstairs, right? He's to the most powerful leaders of that day. He's confessing the truth. And Peter is just downstairs, just a matter of feet and elevation difference, is denying the truth to the least powerful slaves of that day, okay? In verse 69, a servant girl who maybe saw Peter with Jesus several days before at the temple, she says, you were also with Jesus the Galilean. Peter, afraid of guilt by association with Jesus, gives this incredibly academic answer. We can all relate to this. We go to class. I don't know what you mean. I'm not sure what you were saying, literally, in the Greek. I mean, aren't we all in a way with Jesus? (laughs) Like, in this space and time, I mean... We're sharing a courtyard together. But notice in verse 71, as like Peter is, creep, is saying these things, he's kind of creeping backwards. He's creeping backwards away from the light of the fire and into the darkness. He's creeping farther away from the center of the courtyard to the nearest exit, the entrance. Verse 71, another servant girl comes forward, identifies Peter, this time to an audience of other people, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter, feeling the pressure pretty intensely at this point, gives a stronger refusal to assure that he has nothing to do with Jesus. He says, I do not know the man. Okay? Now there's no chalking it up to like vague misunderstandings. Okay? Things are getting personal even as Peter is getting impersonal. Even as he's refusing to call Jesus by his given name or his titles, the Messiah, or in the Greek, the Christ. Okay? And then this is even more amazing. He feels forced in that moment to take an oath, invoking God the Father against God the Son Jesus. Do you see how crazy this is? Perhaps Peter justifies all of this anger and this tumult inside of him by saying his Messiah is a warrior king. His Messiah would never surrender His Messiah would never submit. His Messiah would never, ever serve anybody. He'd be served. Finally, verse 73. After a length of time, maybe Peter thinks he's in the clear, bystanders multiple come up and tell Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Oh, the irony. The more Peter protests his involvement with Jesus, the more he gives away his involvement with Jesus by his accent. Do you get this? The more he says, I'm not with the man, the more his northern careless vowels and his guttural G's and K's are a giveaway that he's from, he's from Galilee. And to this proof, Peter again gets feisty. I do not know the man, he says again. But now he punctuates the denial under with another oath and even a curse, calling down evils upon his head or perhaps even cursing Jesus' name. This is the way that Frederick Buechner describes the aftermath in verses 74 through 75. And then the old cocks waddles, trembling scarlet, as up over the horizon it squawked, the rising sun, and tears running down Peter's face like rain down a rock. The man who thought of himself as the rock, Rocky, wept bitterly that he could collapse like a pile of sand. And perhaps Peter ran out of the presence of Jesus and the presence of others because he believed the curse he had uttered on himself was about to become true. That Jesus' own words, the one who denies me before men, I will deny before the angels. Luke chapter 12, verse 9. Peter generally despaired that these words were Jesus' last words about him. So what do you do? What do I do when we hit this place? When we're forced to honestly realize that we can and maybe have let yourself and everybody else down. I mean, do you pivot from self-preservation to self-sufficiency? Do you make more vows? This time I'm going to. Next time I'm not going to. Do we like fortify our public presentable selves with strengths and affirmations that begin with Sid always and Sid never? Do we develop this second self, which I think is so convenient, it's like sort of false humility about being human and like that's kind of sometimes acceptable in certain social circles. My friend calls it the getting real self, right? Where you like take a knee, okay? (laughs) And it's like full of these like practice self-deprecating comments, right? Like there I go again, (laughs) little old me, okay? And like it's this cliche worn vulnerability like I struggle with lust versus I'm addicted to pornography. (laughs) Do we move in utter despair, borderline depression? Do we feel heavy duty anxiety when we get stuck in these moments with our real self? I mean, after all, me without the excuses, me without the qualifiers, feels like this unpredictable mix of motives. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. I never know. I think this moment is exactly why all four gospel of accounts record the story of Peter. This is not some cautionary tale, primarily, okay? It's not like what not to do and how not to do it. Brought to you by Simon Peter, okay? Okay? At the very least, it tells us about the early church's commitment to the truth. Think about this. They are struggling to form a religion. And one of their primary texts, all four of them, in fact, point out a leader, Peter, who is not in the least whitewashed. If anything, he's bluntly called out four different times for being unreliable. At the most the story is repeated over and over and over again because Matthew and Mark and Luke and John want you and want me to see who Jesus always is. You see, the story of Peter's denial is not primarily about Peter or you or me. It's about Jesus. And how Jesus will never, ever deny me, even if it means death. As we dig into point three tonight for my note takers, my note ninjas, look with me at verse 32. And Jesus' promise that comes right on the heels of his prediction of denial. Verse 32 reads, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Look, in the following verses, verses 33 through 35, Peter is completely ignoring this promise, as if it never even happened. But I wonder, I wonder if it doesn't come to mind when the cock crowed in verse 75. That in the very saltiness of our bitter tears, Jesus promises to meet us again. To go ahead of us like a shepherd with his sheep yet again. And this is really a promise of Jesus restoring all things back to the way they were, back to the way they're supposed to be by his resurrection from the dead. Grief to joy, defeat to victory, desertion to renewed allegiance. And we'll get to see that glorious blow-by-blow restoration in John chapter 21 next week, Lord willing. Okay, Uh, We see how Jesus does this to Peter and does this to us then. But in the meantime, verse 75 of our passage also hints at something seen more fully in another gospel. Okay? According to Luke, chapter 22, verse 61, when the rooster crowed, this is what it says, the Lord Jesus turned and looked at Peter. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Jesus was there. Jesus was there for that scene of betrayal. He watched all of the oaths the curse, the denials. And here might be the most important question of all the questions tonight. How did Jesus look at Peter? In that moment, in that worst of moments, how does Jesus look at us and not just in our best moments? You're covered. You're covered in the pornographic pistol pixie dust of shame. You're stuck in a terrible relationship you know you should get out of. We hate God's guts because our lives are not working. Or we hide our interest in him from our more cultured friends. How is Jesus looking at you even then? Everything. Everything hinges on this answer. I know that sounds like Incredibly big, but it's this important. Okay, this idea has the ability to change your life, it has the ability to make you want to draw closer to Jesus, whatever that looks like. It has the ability to make something that feels like information in your head sit in your heart at a feeling gut level. So, how does Jesus look at you? Does he look disgusted? at who you are does he look angry at your struggling is jesus looking at you with disappointment with disdain or condemnation what if that moment in the courtyard in the darkness right next to the nearest exit jesus looked at peter with complete and utter love with forgiveness with understanding What if God looked at you completely exposed, the public self stripped bare, the getting real self seen through, all the way down to how you truly are? And what if the same God turned his face toward us and then turned his face towards the cross and said, I know you. I know you better than you know yourself. And I've always known about a day like this that was going to come. And today, today is the day I will go and die for you. You see, Jesus' look is the same verb in the Greek that was used when Jesus first met Simon and called him Peter. The first time he named him the rock. And Jesus even then knew all there was to know about Simon Peter. He understood who Peter really was, sometimes a loyal rock, sometimes an unreliable pile of sand. And he counted Peter as a best friend, worthy to die for. And this is like so important. Jesus, God thinks people like Peter, people like us are worth dying for. He had to die, not just for our pride, not just for the ways that we think we can do it. He had to die for our despair, the ways we think we can't make it. And Jesus counts people like Peter, people like you, people like me, as people he likes to be around. People he so enjoys, he doesn't mind always being the one who calls. He counts us as friends. Friends, And it all goes back to Peter's original argument with Jesus in verses 33 through 35. What Jesus thinks about us, what Jesus knows about you, matters much more, even than what we think and know about ourselves. <laughs> Do you get that? Like, what Jesus thinks of you, what Jesus knows about you, matters more than you think about yourself. Look, a few years ago... Um, a few, sorry, not a few years ago, a few years after I graduated, I wish wish that was a few years ago, I uh, got a call from my friend at Davidson. Same friend. I was now married and living just outside of Washington, D.C. My friend had come back from a year of teaching English in China, moved back to Davidson, started seeing a girl, and they got real serious. He was calling me, me of all people, to ask if I'd be in his wedding. I didn't invite him to be in my wedding a few years before. I had, in that course of time between when I was married and when this friend asked me to be in his wedding, I had a lot of friends get married. But it was the friend that I betrayed, the friend that I wrote off, who was the first to invite me to be a groomsman. You see, he cherished our friendship even when I didn't. Even when I wouldn't. Even when I left him to go and hang out with easier, cooler, more fun people. And some of you may think that my friend was sentimental or naive or maybe just some sort of pushover. But I think the shock of it all was really that he was just a mere picture of Jesus' fierce affection for me. When he really gets to know you, when Jesus really gets to know you, Jesus won't run away. He will run you down. Even when you leave the light, even when you creep we you be towards the nearest exit again? People may call Jesus naive or sentimental or a pushover, but he's a friend. He's a friend who will never, ever deny me, even if it means death. Would you pray with me? Father, um, I, just, I know this is really hard to believe, um, and I pray that you'd help us in our unbelief. Um, wherever we are with that. And I pray that um, you would help us to believe that in the courtyard, that on the way to death, for the very thing that Peter was doing, that you could look with love and acceptance and understanding even. I pray that would make a world difference for all of us here, that we would see you looking at us that way. Father, pray that you would show us that no matter where we are. In your name, Jesus, we pray.